Tanya Adlita back with Recovering Church Girls, and I have one of my oldest, dearest friends with me, Dan Gross. Hi, Dan. Hello. We were just doing the math the other day, and every time we have this conversation, I still feel like we age another five or ten years in that conversation. We met on a short-term missions trip to Egypt in 1993. And yeah. as of this moment, it is 2018, so there we go. It's been 25 freaking years, <laughs> which is yeah. just crazy to me. Crazy, it's crazy. Insane. Yeah. It's insane. That's, uh, I think I responded with, that's a lifetime. Yep, that is exactly I, how you responded to that text. <laughs> I, I have active relationships in my life right now, and the people, the other people in that relationship are 25 years old. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. yeah, but we're still young, T. We're still young. We are. We are. We're going to hold on to that just as long as we can. And I love the fact that, you know, we're both sitting here enjoying our adult beverages um, because, of course, at that time in our lives, I don't know that we would have been so bold as to think that, first of all, 25 years later, it's kind of funny, um, but, you know, that, that we'd be here having this conversation, thinking about who we were when we were kids in Egypt, um, man, very different trajectories uh, from then to now. So why don't you give us, you know, start off with the idea, give us an idea of what your childhood was like, because you are a PK, you're a mm -hmm. pastor's kid. Yeah. So tell us a little yeah, bit absolutely. about that experience growing up, and, and I'm sure at some point in time we'll, we'll cross paths again in your storytelling. Sure. Uh, I, I would start that by saying I'm incredibly lucky to have parents who even inside of that evangelical kind of Christian mode uh, encouraged me to think for myself mm. and to be the man, the person that I, that I was supposed to be, you know? Um, so, I mean, yeah, sure. I mean, there, there's, it, you can't be in that life or in that world without being exposed to propaganda, uh, both good and bad. You can't uh, have parents who are deeply committed to their faith without them having, you know, influencing you that way. But, mm -hmm. um, but my parents are, are wonderful people. They're still very much in that world. My dad and mom pastor a small church in Ohio uh, near the Amish country and um, lovely people. They still uh, subscribe to that belief system and live that lifestyle. Um, <clears throat> but they're, you know, everything that I've, I've come to uh, be frustrated with about Christianity, my parents don't necessarily emulate that. So I feel like I was very lucky. Um, mm -hmm. my... Hold on one second before oh, you, yeah. you get any further, because that's just that fascinates me. You are the first person in the, you know, 10, 15 interviews that I've conducted already mm -hmm. that has said from the very beginning, my parents set this up so that I would be an independent thinker. And I'm remembering a moment for as much as, you know, I have this uh, love-hate tension with my own childhood, uh, I do specifically remember kind of sort of leading a sit-in rebellion my senior year in high school. And uh, my parents got called into the principal's office and my dad pretty much like ripped the, the principal up one side and down the next in the idea of saying, no, we're not gonna come. We fully support Tanya. If she thought this was the right thing to do, mm -hmm. then we're going to back her up. We raised her to be an independent thinker. And I think that I kind of forgot that element of my own childhood, looking at the society and the culture in which I was raised and 
unfairly lumping my parents into that same thing because there are certain pieces that they really held out separately from that, uh, you know, kind of mainstream way of being an evangelical, charismatic, non-denominational, fill-in-your-label, you know, here um, type of a thing. So I appreciate you calling that distinction because I think that's that's a really hard thing for people when they've left the church where they still feel the emotional warm fuzzies and they want to be able to have that level of relationship and connection with their parents, but they're choosing not to believe the same ideology. There is a tension there. So I really appreciate mm-hmm. holding space for both of those things. Uh, yeah. I, I, I think we probably had very similar experiences where uh, now as adults, um, and I know you asked me about childhood and I'll get to that, but as adults, what that looks like is my parents respect where I'm at and mm. they don't, um, they don't really attempt to proselytize me beyond um, just, you know, having conversations periodically where they'll, they'll just try to understand where, what I believe now and where I stand. Um, but they don't, they don't shame me. Um, and they, they don't make me feel uh, like a, like a sinner, you know, I mean, I guess that's probably the best way to put it is my parents don't put that on me. And I, so I'm very lucky because I know a lot of people don't have that. Right. Um, right but I do. And I feel lucky to have that. But yeah, that's my, my childhood, I think was, I think I'm a, I'm certainly a product of it. My parents were ostensibly Catholic until I was about uh, seven, almost eight. And I say ostensibly because we we didn't really go to mass regularly, but I come from a pretty lengthy Irish Catholic background. So it was just a cultural thing. And um, they, when I was seven, um, <clears throat> they, it, they would describe it as they, they finally gave the hearts to the Lord. They, they got saved. They became Christians. I, I view it as a conversion from one religious context to another. And it's fair to say that they, you know, they dove in head first. Um, prior to that, my parents were pretty heavy partiers. Um, just said they just like to have fun. They were hippies and they partied a lot. They they certainly took care of me. They they weren't like neglectful of me, but they were involved in drugs and, you know, drinking heavily and uh, just, you know, having fun. They were very young. They were teenagers when I was born. So they were still kind of living that youthful lifestyle until this, this religious conversion. And um, so I had already been exposed, I think, to a different way of living. So when I, when I came into the church, I had already, I was kind of, you know, the, the kids looked at me differently because most of them had were born into it, you know, and I were raised into it up to that point. So even at, even at seven, eight, nine years old, I was very attuned to the fact that I was different mm-hmm. and that they were fascinated with uh, my dad's story. Um, he was, you know, in, in a very small town way, but it was kind of the local pot dealer. <laughs> and so, you know, his, his converting to Christianity was, a, was like a, a, it was a story. People loved it. And so I was his kid and that kind of bled over to me. A um, few years into that experience, they, my dad started um, preaching at the local jail. He kind of became the de facto chaplain. Hmm. And then he went through an ordination process and a training process and eventually was ordained as a, as a minister in our denomination. And um, he was itinerant at first. He didn't become a pastor he was, he was just an evangelist. So it, that was pretty nice because I got to know a lot of people in my region because he'd get booked at all these little speaking engagements and I, I made friends that way. Um, 
but then he became a pastor when I was, I think it was age 14 to 16. Uh, he was a pastor of a small church. Um, the church that they pastor now, they, they started after I'd already moved away. So this mm-hmm. was a completely different church. Mm-hmm. And um, that was when you met me. When you met me, my dad was the pastor of this little country church. And um, that was also kind of when I had my conversion experience. I, I had, over the course of that, we'll call it eight years or so, I did what kids do. You know, sometimes I would go up to the altar and <laughs> have my little <laughs> experience. And sometimes I would rebel and not do that. Um, I started kind of partying pretty hard at 14. Uh, and so for that two years, I was living kind of, you know, rebellious life or whatever. Uh, but innocently so. I, I say that <clears throat> because I think anybody watching this would appreciate that in a Christian context, if you grew up as a Christian kid, I was probably the bad kid your parents didn't want <laughs> to hang out with. Right. But but remove the Christian culture, suddenly I'm just I was just a normal teenager. Yeah. I wasn't I wasn't out blowing up. Yeah, you're probably pretty mild. Yeah, seriously. I mean, I, I, I did some small drugs and went to parties and got drunk and had sex and did all the things that normal, normal, typical teenagers do. And uh, that made me a bad boy, I guess, in the church. Oh, you were totally a bad boy in the church. Um, and let's not, you know, pretend that that doesn't carry over to a lot of the conversations we've been having about like the purity movement and, you know, all mm. the rest of it. Because these are all things that we talk about within the context of recovering church girls. Um, and uh, we also have the little tagline, which you and I argued about. And I said something about an enlightened guys. And you're just like, yeah, I'll let you tell me what you're going to say about that. But my, <laughs> my stance is such that both recovering and enlightened, that it's really all the same thing. Because there are so many different layers that we have to become aware of first in order to be able to peel them back and to really, you know, identify is there anything here that I need to work through or that I need to be able to figure out how that impacted me and, and kind of put all the pieces together. Um, so when I told you the enlightened guy, what was your response? I don't remember exactly what I said, but I, I know, I know I probably alluded to, I, I don't, I'm not, I'm not enlightened. That's exactly um, it. That's exactly what you said. <laughs> I'm, I'm still very much feeling my way through the cave like everybody else. Um, well, I think, I, I think that's when just we... it. Like, I, just even that sentence in and of itself of being able to say, like, A, we're all in this together, and B, you know, I don't know that any of us really have it figured out, and that's okay. And instead mm-hmm. of having this, uh, you know, expectation and all of the things that go along with expectations, you know, maybe we just have a conversation instead. And, and that really changes everything about how we can approach this and also – where we find each other in our stories. I think if, if enlightened means finally admitting that we're all equally blind, mm-hmm. <laughs> um, I, then sure, you know, I, I would accept that. I just, I think everybody's kind of, I don't, I'm trying to avoid using certain cliches uh, like journey and, you know, but I, but that's true. Like we're know, all kind of on so a journey. Hard. It is so hard to not use like journey or enlightenment or awareness or any of the buzzwords. And I am right there with you. I try to avoid them and yet they've all become buzzwords because they describe the thing so well. So here we are. Stuck They're really good words. metaphors. They're really good metaphors. And there's, there's classic pieces of literature, the Bible included that, use those metaphors to describe the human experience. So 
I, you know, I, it's, I only avoid them because I feel like people get tired of hearing them, not, not because they're not perfect, because right. sometimes they are. Right, exactly. And we, we are indeed on a journey and we need to, we need to accept that yeah. and not think of it as some kind of a rival, you know, where, you know, I'm enlightened now, I, you know, and, mm. and I know that's not what you mean by that word, but <laughs> I'm enlightened now, so I've got nothing else to do. And that's not true because all enlightened really means is I've just shed light on another cavern exactly <laughs> in this cave <laughs> that i need to explore and um yeah i mean i i think there's there's certainly some merit to saying that i have come out of that religious context into where i'm at now mm. um there is some merit to that uh but i i think that everybody is constantly moving out of something into something else it might be you might be think you were in love with somebody and and then you realize this relationship isn't healthy and mm. so I'm going to divorce that person and move on or it might be uh it could be something even more innocuous I thought I was really into soccer and <laughs> and so I'm evolved past that now and I can't remember the last time I touched a soccer ball so you know I, I think you know in a, in a deeper way that's what religion and faith was for me it was it was an important part of my life and I am a product of it for sure, but I have since moved past it. So and what did that look like for you? Was there any particular moment that you felt like, oh, I don't think this really suits me anymore? Or was it a series of moments? Like how, how did this, you know, awakening, if you will, how did it happen for you? Absolutely the latter. I, although I, I, can, I can pinpoint the moment that I decided I'm not a Christian anymore because I, I actually wrote about it uh, on the day I made that decision. That's the only reason why I can say it happened right then, right at this moment. Um, I, but in terms of like the, the, the process of that, like, like getting, getting to that point, there was, a, there was kind of a beginning and then, and that was the end of that process where I, which was an entirely new beginning. Here I am now, I'm not a Christian. What do I do with that? Right, what um, does that mean? Yeah, exactly. And I, it started, the beginning was uh, a, a letter I'd written to my dad. I, I had, my dad's very much into um, uh, the rapture. Like that's just a big deal to him. He loves it. Uh, he would call it an important part of his theology, but I, you know, to me, it's, it's just a really cool hobby that he enjoys. Um, and I had, I had read about a, a theory called preterism. And, and preterists, people that subscribe to preterism, believe that prophecy is cyclical and it, it, it's constantly happening. So let's use the rapture and the tribulation and the antichrist as an example. Preterists believe that there have been many antichrists. There have been many raptures. There have been many tribulation periods and, and it will continue for the rest of time. So preterists don't view prophecy as something that was spoken and then it's later fulfilled. They view it as something, it's, it's almost like a myth. It would be related to myth. Uh, myths are true because they're always true. Um, they recur. And so I read about that and I, and I was like, wow, you know, I don't think I believe in a literal rapture. I think I probably believe this. And I just wrote that letter to my dad and he wrote me this I'm not kidding, 78 page <gasps> wow. uh, dissertation. <laughs> um, I still have it. And it's uh, just, you know, this is why the rapture is important and why, you know, you need mm. to, uh, anyway, 
that was the beginning. So letting go of the commitment on his part. I mean, 78 pages like that. But he, yeah, he loves that stuff. You know, (laughs) so he's, he's a writer like I am and and he's a preacher. So he obviously likes to debate and, um, and talk. So, um, yeah, that was the start being able to say, wow, I'm making a choice as an adult to believe something that was sold to me as, as a, as a immutable truth. Mm. Um, I'm, I'm choosing not to believe it and it's okay. And that it kind of snowballed from there. The, the next big moment for me was when I decided I didn't believe in hell. Um, I remember that conversation. I remember uh, exactly where I was standing when you and I had that conversation. And I, and I think too, like uh, several of our close friends, we, we had like this little dialogue going on back then. And I was still kind of like, I don't know what I think yet. And that, and then I arrived at, I definitely don't believe in hell. And that led to me believing that the Bible is a metaphor. And yeah, so I, it, that whole process took about two, two to three years. And it was just, it was kind of, I, w- I would call it a snowball effect, whereas letting go of one belief led to me questioning another. Mm. And, and then eventually um, to complicate things, I was working at a pretty prominent Christian ministry at the time. And, um, and I was, a, I was one of the VPs there. And so I was in leadership and I'm making strategic decisions for this ministry. And uh, I'm like, Oh, Oh no. <laughs> I don't really believe this anymore. So the, when I first started like going through this journey, I went to my boss, the COO, and said, hey, you should probably take me out of the Devo schedule. I, I don't know if I should be teaching uh, theology or faith because I'm, I'm really asking a lot of tough questions. Mm. And when I finally decided I'm not a Christian anymore, it was very shortly after that I, I resigned from that place. And, and there, there were lovely people, but I don't think it would have been fair for me mm. to continue working in, at such an influential level in a, in a ministry when I, when I was, I just didn't believe it anymore. So right. yeah, the very foundation <laughs> no longer matched, but I have exactly. to say two things. One is I feel like that in and of itself is very honorable because I think that there are so many people that um, would kind of rest on their laurels in that, in the idea of, you know, well, I've paid my dues. I've gotten to this point you know, I've got the nice cushy corner office type of a thing. I don't want to give that up. And yet what I've always appreciated about you is that you are one of the few people I know, and maybe it's just that I know you so well, that there is that very strong line of this is who I am. This is what I believe. And I'll, you know, make damn sure that as much as within in my control, that the choices I make are going to line up with that. And I think that that kind of integrity is something that we can probably attribute back to a lot of the childhood and, you know, kind of the the shaping of who you became, but also at the same time, that ability for you to become your own person, the integrity was something that was always really important to you. And I don't know that there are very many other environments in which having that kind of a polar opposite where integrity is still going to win out. So I think that that's really interesting. You know, anytime you get involved in ministry, I feel like it's interesting because you've got the, you know, who is it that we are expected to be? What's the party line that we're supposed to be following? And where do I actually fit into this whole thing? 
mm-hmm. me myself versus what other people think I am. So, you know, once again, like multiple layers that we get to, to approach this with. Uh, I appreciate the compliment. I, <laughs> kind of I will say that I, <laughs> I, stri- I strive for what you just described. I can't say that I, I always win that battle, but well, no, of I course do. not, because you are human and you do really suck at accepting compliments. So this is kind of fun because I have you on the podcast, and I can give yeah. you as many compliments as I want, <laughs> and you have no choice but to accept them. So now that I have figured out this little plot twist, I may be using this to my advantage. Nice, nice. Um, <laughs> I I will say that I I I like I look back at that upbringing and not not just upbringing because that makes it sound like I only was influenced by choice in the matter. Yeah. I mean, I did have choice. And then I spent a number of years as an adult as well, you know, where I'm no longer being influenced by my parents as much, but you know, I'm still kind of in that world. And I would say my time spent being heavily influenced by Christianity kind of inside that culture, I view it as ultimately beneficial. Um, There is baggage from that, Mm -hmm. but I, I don't think that, Christianity owns the market on giving people baggage and I don't as much as I don't think they own the market on giving people good character so when I look at some of the positive things that have come out of it yeah I can I think I can link that back to uh just kind of the philosophy of Christianity that I was that I was taught the the really good parts Mm. of you know redemption I mean that 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 if I could pull one thing if I look at that whole ball of Christianity and pull one idea out of it that I think Christianity purportedly does better than most of the other philosophies I've seen. And that is the idea of redemption, the idea that Hitler himself can get down on his knees and pray to God mm-hmm. and, and he's forgiven. Um, naturally now, I, I don't necessarily view that in as literal terms as I once did, but I still, I think redemption is beautiful because we're all, um, we all have corruption. We all have things about us that are just kind of fucked up and icky. And Christianity tells us, and I know other philosophies do too, for any non-Christians watching this, <laughs> I know other philosophies do as well, but Christianity, one of the core tenets is that anybody, you know, as you are, as fucked up as you might feel, as broken as you might feel, anybody can go to in Christianity, it's Jesus, uh, and be, you know, cleansed or, you know, maybe not fixed. Fixed probably isn't the right word, um, but forgiven is a good word. That's a word that Christians find really moving, and I still do. Um, I love that, and that's that's an idea that I, I feel like Christianity gave me. Hmm. Again, I don't think they own the market on redemption, um, but I you know, I feel like it was in, ingrained inside of me that, you know, you have value, you have intrinsic value, no matter how fucked up you feel. Mm. And I think that's beautiful. That's so interesting because most of the conversations that I've had around this idea as it relates to our individual experiences with Christianity, specifically with the idea of, you know, kind of we've all fallen short of grace. I'm surprised how many scriptures come back, by the way. Um, but the the idea being that we in and of ourselves are not good enough is what a lot of us took away from that experience and the layers upon layers of how it impacted our self-worth. So mm-hmm. it's really fascinating to me to hear you kind of take the counter 
conversation in that of that that's something that that you really appreciate about the idea and the value of forgiveness and being able to be made whole whereas a lot of the other conversations up to this point have been that that people and myself I included I think um I'm like processing this as I'm saying it, Um, but the idea being, you know, that I wasn't good enough on my own and that I had to work for the approval of others and I had to, you know, earn the the position and the respect and, you know, blah, 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 blah. For me, that ended up me eventually spinning out in a workaholic way of being and a people pleasing and the perfectionism. Mm -hmm. That was my trifecta. Uh, But what I'm hearing and what you're saying is, is the same coin but the other side of it and a much gentler encompassing quality that i don't know i would have been as quick to identify well i think you're, you're probably hitting the nail on the head in terms of the con the the tradition you and i were raised in um and and that is very uh this is getting into theology which i i just swore i'd never do but <laughs> Um, it's a Calvinistic viewpoint. Uh, it is viewing the cross and the resurrection as a punitive action that, that we're just, we're just evil, gross creatures and God had to punish somebody. Mm. So he put his own son on the cross and punished him. Um, and I, I, there are very small percentage of Christianity, both currently and also over the course of history, very small percentage have believed that, um, the in the broader context christianity that whole redemption and uh it it is saying you are good enough so if you look at i'll use the bible actually if you look at the prodigal son story uh that dude (laughs) he went out and did what kids do man like he went out and wasted his inheritance he was he was a freaking idiot and (laughs) when he came back there's not really any language about i forgive you uh, it wasn't like the dad saying, yeah, you fucked up, dude, you done fucked up, but it's okay. Cause I'm your dad. So I'm going to give you a hug. No, like that entire allegory is you're my son. You're already good yeah. enough. What do you mean? You're home. Yeah. You're home. You, you, you can go fuck up all you want. You're, that doesn't change who you are. So yes, I think the, the evangelical way of, of taking the cross and hitting us with it and saying, you're evil, you're, you're bound for hell and you need, you need forgiveness. You're not good enough. That is such, it feels huge to us because almost everybody that you and I know Mm -hmm. from that world believes that way, but that's, it's like 15% of Christianity uh, believes that Uh, the other 85% um, subscribed. They don't believe the cross was punitive. um, And they, they think that uh, we are good enough. We're, we're God's children. And, and again, you know, as I'm saying all this, I will remind the viewer that I view it all as metaphor. I, I, don't, <laughs> I really don't subscribe to that as a literal viewpoint anymore, but, but I, I think it's beautiful. And mm. so when I say redemption, when I say uh, forgiveness, uh, often that's you forgiving yourself. I mean, we're, we're mm, yes. I do believe we're good enough, but I think it's foolish and immature to say we never royally fuck up. Because well, we yeah. do, yeah. Of and when you do, you need forgiveness. And I think often that, that just means you need to forgive yourself. Mm-hmm. So for for somebody still in a religious tradition, they they it helps them to assign that forgiveness value to God. Because then it's like, well, God forgives me. This all powerful being who created the universe forgives me. So 
I guess I can forgive myself. I, right. I don't feel that I need that anymore, but I, I understand why humanity collectively has said that they do. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's almost like the idea of I can borrow God's forgiveness to, you know, build up my ability to be able to forgive myself by way of his forgiveness. Yeah, yeah, that's, I like, I like that. I like that this a lot. Is, this is so interesting to me. So what, kind of where did you go from here? Um, the last time, I'm trying to remember, you know, when all of our, our paths have crossed and not mm-hmm. over the past 25 years, uh, but we met, like I said earlier, on the short-term missions trip to 93. We both went back to our respective homes, came mm-hmm. back again to uh, the ministry teen mania, which a few of us have started to talk about a bit more, mm-hmm. and into that internship experience, which of course then later was featured on the you know TV show going, oh, was this a cult? So mm-hmm. we, can, we can get into that in just a second here. Um, but then from there, you and I both went into Oral Roberts University, Mm-hmm. Um, which again, you know, just continuing the the cycle of the charismatic evangelical community um, and being very immersed in it, like there wasn't there wasn't anything else in that uh, you know day to day society. I think, um, unless of course you had some like underground club going that you didn't tell me about, because um, <laughs> I was still one of the good girls back then. Um, I mean, my goodness, I was a resident advisor. So, you know, talk about, uh, we had another conversation earlier talking about dress codes and things like that. And like, not only, not only did I have to abide by the dress code, I was the one that literally had the ruler outside my dorm door that, you know, we had to check with every now and then. And it was actually, it was there as a joke, but it really wasn't, you know, it was kind of like, we all knew it was there. Um, Yeah. So there, so there was that. Um, So yeah, during, let's go even with the college years. During college, what what came up for you? As a quick aside, my least favorite part of the RA program was when I had to ask people to remove their hats. Mm. And I, I, I remember, haven't seen you without a hat in I don't know how long. <laughs> I don't have hair anymore, so it's like my only <laughs> option to like change my fashion. But I wear a hat easily 85% of the time. Um, but at the time, I remember there was a prominent pastor's son I won't use any names uh <laughs> but he was he was up in the cafeteria and he had a hat on and I was sitting at the head RA table and uh and uh, I think it was Jason Chida was with me and he goes you've got that and I was like oh, come on yeah. dude like really <laughs> so, so I went over to the table and I was like hey man you gotta, you gotta take the hat off and he looks at me, he was like, are you, are you kidding me right now? And I'm like, I, I don't know why, like, I, like a fire kind of came up in me and I, I got so mouthy with that poor kid. And uh, yeah, I won't, I won't relate the rest of the conversation. It ended with him taking the hat off, but uh, it was, uh, I remember that day I, I kind of had the fire in me, but I, I just, I hated enforcing rules mm. that I just thought were, were dumb. I, yeah. College, college was interesting. I, I know I didn't have an underground club, but I did go to the Ocean Club a few times. Do you remember that? <laughs> you remember I'm, that not, exists I'm out? not supposed to admit that I know what that was. Okay. Um, so for anybody who doesn't know or isn't familiar with the lingo, um, RA is resident advisor and um, both Dan and I. So the, the university that we went to, we did not have the um, Greek environment. Like there were no sororities, fraternities, any of the rest of it. What we had instead were wings and our 
uh, dorms were mirrors of each other. So I would be responsible for the wing in my dorm of, you know, call it probably around 30 women. And I would have a brother wing. Um, unfortunately, Dan and I were never paired together, but man, wouldn't that have been fun. Uh, and so we had brother wing, sister wing type of a thing. So, you know, what a lot of people would do in a secular university with the sorority and fraternity, we replicated with this whole wing environment. And even that in and of itself, like being a part of the RAs and the training that we had that was part discipleship training, if you will, like the idea of it is our responsibility not only to enforce the rules, but also to take a bit of this, you know, big brother, big sister kind of role and shepherding people in their faith. And we we had chaplains on our floors as well, and that was mainly their responsibility, but that was a big part of what we were supposed to do too. Uh, So yeah, I mean, again, so many layers that when we're starting to question these things ourselves, but we're also the ones enforcing the rules... Yeah, it gets interesting. It's funny you bring that up because I something that I think any other undergrads who have gone through school understand what an RA is, or some sometimes they're called hall directors and other uh, other uh, schools. Um, I don't think they quite understand what that meant at ORU, and right. because if you go, I, I spent a semester at Ohio State and. RAs were the nerds, the engineering majors who <laughs> still lived on campus and hadn't joined a Greek system or whatever, and, and they, but they needed a job. And so it was just a job. You applied to it and you, you just made sure that people weren't being complete fucking idiots on the dorm. At ORU, it was very, very different. We, it was a very stringent acceptance process. It was and kind they, of an elite thing. I mean, to it, be it was. RA, it was a heady deal. It, it was a big deal on campus because everybody lived on campus. Like anybody that doesn't know about it, where you, you, That's a great unless you point. were yeah. married or your parents lived in town, you had to live on campus. Or all four if years. you got a doctor's note, because that's how I got off campus oh, my last go. semester. <laughs> there you go. There were, so there were exceptions. Point being, there were exceptions, but the bulk of the student body, even upperclassmen, lived on campus. Yeah, that's a and great distinction. So, RAs were, you know, you go through this stringent acceptance process and then you go through this pretty intensive training process. And then the expectation was you aren't, it isn't just a job. You're expected to be a leader, a figurehead on your floor. And that is, that's interesting. And this is, I, I'm going to tie this into our conversation because it's, it, it was during that year, I think, that I started feeling really weird about the path, I, the journey I was on. <laughs> I, we came out of that team media internship already feeling like, even if we didn't openly say it, because I think, I think out of our mouths, we would say the opposite, but inside we really kind of believed that we were better Christians than everybody else. Like, um, well, yeah, because hello, we were in the ministry for an entire year. So when everybody else was either, you know, backpacking around Europe or getting an early start on college, no, no, we were following God's calling. And let's not forget that we raised money to pay Teen Mania for to work the opportunity for <laughs> to be able to work 60, 70 hours a week for them. Um, but yeah, I mean, so much. Yeah. I mean, I feel like Teen Mania needs to have its own freaking series on this oh, episode yeah. or on this podcast because there's so much to it. But I think that there was very much, again, this elitist type of thing. But that's also, I think, where I I remember very much feeling like a second class Christian, even within Teen Mania, because I had no desire to go and live on the mission field. 
And so, you know, the vast majority of, of interns that we had together, you know, in this thing, mm-hmm. a lot of them did want to go overseas and, and they wanted to pursue that life. And they were always held up as this, you know, God wants us to go into every man's world and, you know, the mm-hmm. tent maker and, you know, like all of the things. Um, and I think that that was something, you know, I definitely internalized that, that I wasn't good enough or special enough or whatever because I had no desire to go and and do the whole mission field thing. That's but anyway, very, I took us off off track. I apologize. Well, that's a, that's a very human thing you've identified. We our brains love to categorize. We love taxonomy, and because we love those things, we create hierarchy. Mm-hmm. So, in our in our minds, we were we were better than the Gen Pop at ORU. But maybe inside of Teen Mania, you know, like I always felt a little like an outlier. Here's an interesting story. When I was a project director for Teen Mania, and what will maybe if you do a Teen Mania episode, we'll define what that means. Um, Well, the nutshell version really quickly is that there are teams that go overseas and the project director is responsible for all of the teams and for liaison or liaising with the on-site, you know, contact, whoever that would be, whether it's a church or, or ministry or what have you. Yeah. So just as a, you know, in case you missed the other episode, there's a, there's your nutshell version. More, more of a logistics kind of operations lead. Uh, and But again, going back to that hierarchy and taxonomy, even inside of Team Mania, it was like, oh, wow, you've been selected to be you're a PD. A PD. You're, you're like a super <laughs> Christian. What is going on? You must just like raise people from the dead. And I... I remember uh, telling my team leaders, um, I don't care what Team Mania said, you're going to reduce the number of ministry sites that you do in any given day because we're not getting quality time. Mm-hmm. And at the time, I was like super convinced that Team Mania was way too obsessed with numbers. Like they, they wanted to say 70,000 people in India raise their hands. And I was like, <laughs> but it's not, but we're leaving two minutes after that experience. So, so I, mm. I actually told my team leaders, you're, you're going to do three of these a day. And uh, they were being pressured to do six, six you know. And yeah. so one of my team leaders, who actually was an intern at that time, texted Team Mania and was like, oh, our PD has gone off the rails. He's telling us to do <laughs> less Ratted ministry. Oh, yeah. And uh, I remember um, this, again, I won't use names, but a person who was kind of in charge of all of us at the time uh, called me and said um what and I, and I said <laughs> you you can fire me if you want but I'm not going to change uh this is it's wrong what we're doing and um I so I, even then I felt like a bit of an outlier and it's funny they just right. kept promoting me I kept like I kept well, I doing it and here's where I would like to throw back to that aforementioned uh, compliment that you don't like receiving when it comes to integrity because I think that there weren't enough people in that environment saying are we doing any real good? You know, long term, what are we creating here? And are we helping or hurting? Whether that's, you know, from an economic standpoint, mm-hmm. whether that's a sustainability, you know, any of the things, there are conversations that a lot of us would turn around and we would have at the end of the night or when we got back into the U.S. or whatever the yep. case might be. But there weren't enough people that were talking about it live in the moment. And you were. So, you know, that's pretty cool. As far so as I'm I. Concerned. I carried that, you know, I, that kind of, uh, I'll call it because it sounds cool. I'll call it a punk rock attitude. <laughs> I carried that into the RA program at ORU. And 
I, I just started getting really disillusioned with this whole idea of a hierarchy because I knew myself and I, I'm like, they, th these Christian groups have promoted me. They've put me in charge. And do you know why? Because I'm charismatic. That's it. There was no other qualification. I'm care. I'm charismatic. I know how to speak to people. And I was so, I, I thought that's why Benny Hinn and all these other assholes can get up and steal money from blue haired grandmas. And we, in the Christian world, they call that anointing. I'm like, it's not fucking anointing. They're, they're used car salesmen. They're good at talking. And I looked at my own life and I said, this is funny because I'm the same thing. I'm, <laughs> I'm this stupid. I was one of the youngest project directors ever. There was no way I should have been put in charge of as much as they did. And it, they did it because I could talk the talk. Mm. And I, I was super frustrated with that. So I took that same attitude into the RA program. Yes, I still, when Jason Tridow tells me to go take some, tell somebody to take their hat off, I did it. But some of the ways that I, I kind of rebelled was I didn't do church checks. I just didn't do them. And I told my door, I was like, you guys can turn me in if you want, but I'm not going to come knock on your door on Sundays. If you don't want to go to church, that's your prerogative. Um, sorry, yeah, I'm not going to do it. If you're making the assumption that one of our responsibilities was indeed to go down the hall and open each room, um, whether knocking on the door and waiting for the person to open the door themselves or using our master key to find key out in. if they were actually in their rooms or if they were indeed at church. Yep, that was part of our job. Um, and then there's a particular pastor that a lot of us really uh, loved who started throwing church on Friday night. And boy, did that throw a wrench in the, in the plan oh, yeah. because then, you know, everybody's going to Gungers Friday night. And... But they start passing out those cards. Remember, it would say, yes. I went to church. At, at, was it called Believers then? It was called Believers back then, yeah. I so they, so. They, they went but to we church. all said Gungers. Like, we never yeah. said, I'm going to Believers Church. We're like, no, we're going to Gungers. <laughs> and I, I know I, what's funny is, like, so much of the population of the church was already students who were not mm -hmm. paying very much in tithes. And uh, I don't know if you know this, but, you know, Hanson, the group, Hanson, right, yes. Mbop, their parents, and they went to that church. And so they I had all their bills paid. There was a connection, paid. but I never knew what it was. They, they had all their bills paid because they had, you know, some pretty – high rolling dudes <laughs> hanging Which out is their side. so hysterical i can now that you have said that first of all thank you for the earworm because that song was everywhere because they were tulsa boys so yeah. i mean for like yeah, yeah. the entire what two years worth of mm, bop, 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 bop. i'm like and i don't even sing but i'm like that is so stuck in my head now they, thank you very they much. were they were funding ed's ministry ed Gunger's ministry that makes sense so uh, anyway, I, I think during the RA program was probably when I first started at least questioning my involvement in mm -hmm. ministry. And um, uh, yeah, it's that's really that's what RA was like for me. No, I, I love knowing that, though, because um, I, I had started the, the bulk of my year, my first year as an RA, um, I was much more about the relationships and the engagement more so than the rules. And, um, and so, you know, here we're talking about the hierarchy and all that kind of stuff. I got rookie of the year for the resident advisor program. See, Woo! like you knew what a big deal that was. That was still one of my highest personal honors for a long time afterwards because of not only the hierarchy, but I really did truly invest in the relationships until yeah. one of my biggest regrets in my RA career at the very end, 
the um, dorm director, and I will leave names out of this whole thing, uh, she kind of pulled all the RAs together and she's like, okay, look, it's clean out time. Everybody needs to load their stuff out of the dorms and the rooms need to be cleaned and inspected. And, you know, this is something that, that was really heavy on us to then again, once again, to enforce. Mm-hmm. So she had a whole thing about whatever has happened this year, you are no longer their friend, you are their resident advisor. And your job is to make sure that the room is in proper order. Mm-hmm. And my biggest regret for that year, when it came to this particular role, I'm sure I have other regrets for other things, um, but that particular thing was I went back to our hall meeting and I repeated verbatim what she said. And I will never forget the look on the girls' faces. Now, and we had you know 27 freshmen in that that first year um and we had some amazing amazing times together and here i am saying that's all over folks now i'm all about the rules now we're going to make sure that you know you toe the line mm-hmm. and it was just the just the feeling in the pit of my stomach of like oh my god i just sold out to have a clean dorm room are you kidding me like who am i yeah. but at that point the words were already out and you know there wasn't anything that i could do to pull them back in again so as much as i might have tried I already started the ball rolling, and and that was something that, I mean, it seems like such a small thing, but it's definitely something that I regret because it was so out of alignment with who I really am. Yeah. I I feel you might agree with this, that, you know, there's a lot, like I said, there's lots of positives that came out of that time. One of the negatives that I noticed, though, is this idea, and, and this is probably true of when we were young adults in the 90s. It was truer then, I think, than it is now but it is still true now. And that is that Christians are obsessed with that word leadership mm. and um, are so obsessed with it. And the, the idea that, you know, if you go get a job at Taco Bell, your shift supervisor is now also your life advisor and spiritual advisor. And they're, they're everything to you. They're your leader. Mm. And sometimes it's okay to be like, this is a job. In your in this anecdote you just told, you know, it, it's okay to just say, "Hey, ladies, we're still friends, but I get paid, and my job is to go through with the checklist and check things off. So let's get it right." Um, right. Yeah, rather that's than definitely a better way to handle that situation. But then coming in hard and being like, you know, hey, you know, as as the and I know you didn't say it this way, but you know, culturally, you could have said it this way. I'm the spiritual leader of this dorm at, or of this wing, and as your leader, I'm telling you, cleanliness is important. And (laughs) this isn't about your integrity, ladies. This Mm. is your integrity on the line right now. And none of that's true. Like it has nothing. Like I am getting so triggered from all of the conversations that were laid out for us like that. Like even going back to teen mania days, uh, we ran every morning in, um, you know, in our apartment groups, basically. So again, this very structured environment that we had no choice about. Mm. But I remember 
it started as a joke, and yet, uh, you know, we're we're running around the track or you know out on the grounds or what have you. And I remember certain groups going by, and of course they're going to be faster and they're going to be stronger. And of course it's always the guys that are you know leading this thing, and they're just the the competition. But it was always with a spiritual twist to it, which really creates a bit of a mind fuck after a while. For example, I beat my body and make it my slave. That was something that was said repeatedly going around the track. And you'd have certain groups that would like chant it as their, you know, their mantra. And I remember at some point in time, I internalized to that, that to the point where I had separated so much from my own body that I was literally working myself sick and I didn't see the signs for it. Mm-hmm. And, you know, we would go and run and I'd come back and I would instantly fall asleep while everybody else is doing their quiet time or taking a shower or whatever. I literally got wrote, written up. I guess that's the right way to say that. I said wrote up. I'm like, that's not right. I got written up and reprimanded by the intern director because my apartment leader told on me that I wasn't doing my quiet time in the morning. Well, I was reading my Bible at night, but, you know, who cares about that? Because I wasn't doing it in the prescribed time. You know, again, all of the the hierarchy, the structure, but the misuse of these colloquialisms that really, you know, like there, there was no space for individuality or listening to our bodies or being able to, to key in to ourselves and where we fit into this picture, it was very much about conformity. Mm. And then, you know, when we flip the switch and then now we're the ones that are the leaders and, and then have to enforce that, it, it's a very interesting process, uh, not only to be in it, but I think once you kind of disassociate enough to be able to, you know, peel back the layers and be like, oh, that's what I did right there. Isn't that interesting? That is to me, the, the danger of religion is what you just described. So now that I'm outside of it, the, the thing that I, I, I don't begrudge anyone their beliefs. I, I actually think religion has ultimately been beneficial to humanity. Um, I think a lot, a lot of bad has come from it, but there, the, in terms of the proliferation of human and the human experience of humanity and the human experience, um, religion has been an, a net positive. And I know there are philosophers who would disagree with me, but that's where I stand right now. Uh, unfortunately, um, it, being involved in a religious tradition, A, you're, you're subscribing to that hierarchy already. And B, you have decided my, my soul, my spiritual health, the thing that makes me me, my very identity is now conflated with my performance inside of this culture. And that to me is, is dangerous because, mm-hmm. you know, t- take, it is a philosophical question, you know, what are we beyond flesh and in, in our thoughts? You know, we, we've used the spirit metaphor forever. You know, um, I won't get into what I feel about that, but, you know, we do know as, as, as a human being, when we say spirit, soul, when we say, that thing, what we're talking about is the intrinsic identity that makes us us, mm-hmm. the unique thing. Um, and the health of that thing uh, and the success of that thing is tied very, very deeply, inextricably, I would say, to how I'm performing inside of the religious tradition I subscribe to. And that's the danger because 
you you run into um you know feeling bad uh about your sexual orientation for example mm-hmm. um i have i have christian gay friends who thankfully are are free of of that bondage but um i i also have gay friends who are have not are not out because they feel like their their performance inside of their religious tradition which includes do not have sex with someone of my same gender mm-hmm. um they feel that their spiritual health is dependent on that mm-hmm. um and I, that's kind of a buzzword right now so I, or not a buzzword but a buzz topic right now so i i maybe i shouldn't have used that um it's simple things like I'm, I'm enjoying this very delicious, bitter Italian liqueur, liqueur right now. And in the tradition you and I were raised in, that's some kind of a character flaw, which I find silly now, but at the time it was a big deal, you know, like mm-hmm. I have Christian friends who only drink in private mm-hmm. because they feel like that's some kind of indictment of their spiritual health. And um, though that's just, it's silly. It, it really is silly. Um, I think that, religion ultimately should be a a place of of healing and community and acceptance and if it's not that for you then you're probably in the wrong place Mm. Uh, i know there are there are lots and lots of religious traditions that um really don't give a shit (laughs) whether you drink alcohol or or if you who you love you know i mean that's those are big, big questions that um, I think uh, I think healthy religious uh, traditions don't try to answer for you. <laughs> you know, they they aren't really they aren't really speaking into those those questions. They're they're talking more about um, your your just your overall health as a person. Right. You know. Yeah, the bigger and broader things in, in society exactly. as well. Yeah, absolutely. And and that makes me think of our conversation that we've had earlier uh, in the podcast with Mark Kingsdorf. Uh, and just kind of want to do a little shout out for him and, and his story. So if you haven't had a chance to check that out, um, by all means, please do. Because I think, you know, he's kind of uh, so far, he's one of the few within our community that very much appreciates and enjoys the church that he is a part of and he is openly gay and married and happy in his church and and there's so many things that i think we can learn from his experience as well Uh, but yeah it's just it's so interesting to me that when we really take the time to peel back these pieces of identity we're still left with the same question what is it that makes us us and actually who are we outside of the the labels that we might choose to identify with or especially when we were younger um, and that is across the board whether you grew up in a religious environment or not but just you know that idea of identity and how quick we are as you mentioned earlier to categorize things and to create this hierarchy when in reality I feel like you know there's there's so much more that unifies us and that has a, a consistent thread amongst humanity that so often we, we tend to think that we need to create division in order to find our group, you know, to find mm-hmm. our tribe. And yeah, even that, like, 
as much as I, I love the idea of being fully who you are and that the people who you're meant to serve will gravitate towards you, like I, I do totally believe that, and, you know, those that you do life with and, and all the rest of it, but then there's also this piece of me that says, you know, even that still feels a little polarizing. You know, we think about it like a lot in business and marketing and, and the idea that you want to niche down and you want to be able to, you know, be polarizing so that, you know, you people either love you or they hate you. Like, yeah, and clearly, I guess that's where I'm going by accident with recovering church girls because there's some people that I'm really going to piss off with this. But then on the flip side, you know, the conversations are really much more about finding the common ground and building mm -hmm. on that as opposed to anchoring down into these beliefs and barricading against each other. We, yeah, I, I agree with all that. I, I think... <sighs> There's, there's certain things that we still kind of carry with us. I, I mean, I, I absolutely believe 100% in evolution. And um, uh, I, I think that we have some carryover. Uh, one of the uh, phrases we've used to define this is our is a lizard brain. I can't remember where that was coined, but some, it wasn't by me. Lizard brain being all those little instinctual things that, that kind of drive us. Um, a really <laughs> in the world of sex, somebody forgot to tell the male lizard brain, we are not in danger of, uh, you know, uh, extinction Dying anymore. <laughs> so you can go ahead and not fuck everything you see. And so men and women too, actually studies are showing that women too are stuck with this stupid little thing in our brain that says have uh, as much sex as possible with as many different partners as we can. And, um, we don't necessarily behave that way, but we, there is a, there is this little piece of a drive inside of our minds that uh, that pushes us that direction. And I think another uh, uh, piece of that 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 lizard brain that is really bad is our desire and need to put ourselves in a group and shun everyone else who doesn't fit in that group. Mm -hmm. Now that that served us really well when we were roaming the plains of Africa and this person looks different. I can't trust them. I think I'm just going to put a spear through them uh, and wear their skin as a hat. You know, like that, that, that served us well back then because it kept us safe from marauding tribes. It kept our family safe from people that would come and try to steal our, our, our wives and kids. And uh, so if anybody that looked different or believed different or wore different clothes or we didn't recognize them, we, we like, you're less than we we're the best. You're not that. And so I don't trust you. I don't even like you to stay away. And then as we started to form societies, we started to form trade agreements and, you know, this has been a long process, but somehow we've arrived, thankfully in the 21st century, there's almost 8 billion of us. Uh, we're doing all right. <laughs> in fact, we're doing two all right. And uh, somebody forgot to tell us that our lizard brain, that it's okay to, to trust people and to mm. let people in who are different than you are. In fact, it's more than okay. It's healthy. It's beneficial. Yeah. Somebody forgot to tell our lizard brain that. The good thing is, even though we're influenced by our lizard brain, I don't think we're, we're slaves to it. Mm -hmm. And um, the only self-help book I give a shit about is Seven Habits for Highly Effective People. I really don't care about anything else. As far as I'm concerned, everything that's come after that has been somebody rehashing Stephen Covey's <laughs> original ideas. 
And one of the things that, and he didn't even coin this, but Viktor Frankl coined this, is the, the idea that there's, for the human being, there's something between stimulus and response. For most animals and most plants, you, you stimulate them a certain way, they respond a certain way. Um, some animals are capable of pretty, I'm a huge whale guy, and whales appear to also be capable of certain forms of higher reason. Elephants, another good example of other primates. But humans, more than any other species, we have the ability to say, I'm being stimulated in this way. I'm going to consider how I'm going to respond to that. And I may choose to respond differently than what that stimulus is kind of dictating. So my lizard brain is saying, uh, you know, I'm a white guy, that my lizard brain is saying, oh, that guy's black, he's dangerous, he might rob you. Bigotry, racism, all in that lizard brain. Mm -hmm. 20,000 years ago, served me really, really well. But today, <laughs> that's ridiculous. And I consciously know this. Um, you can't see it on video, but a spider literally just lowered itself off of my hat. And <laughs> You're that right. Was, we did not see that. Sorry. Sorry, viewers. I just had to pull <laughs> a tiny little spider that was, it was like lowering like this. That's kind of funny. Anyway, what I'm getting at is we, we can consciously decide, uh, even though I might have this stupid ingrained bigotry that, that it doesn't tell me to hate, but what it does tell me is to be suspicious and to fear mm -hmm. anybody who's different than I am. Um, we can consciously arrest that and say, no, that's, I don't need that. Mm -hmm. I can embrace this person who's different than I am. I can listen to what they have to say. I can consider their thoughts and their ideas um, and, and either accept them or, or reject them and mm -hmm. still love them and still right. actually like that person. That's something we can consciously do. And that's something that's amazing about humanity that's something that kind of differentiates us from other species that we're aware of, that, that we are capable of doing that. And mm -hmm. I, I think that that is probably why religions get into trouble, why Christianity, evangelical Christianity gets into trouble. And it ingrains it into our minds that, you know, these other sects of Christianity or these other religions or these mm -hmm. atheists or whoever, they're wrong and they're dangerous and they're scary. And there, there's actual Bible verses that kind of imply that we should just shun them, keep them away because they threaten our way of thinking and our, which is clearly superior. And we, but we now have the ability to say, okay, no, that might be my gut response, but that's not right. Mm -hmm. Something that's going to be healthy for the next 20,000 years of, of humanity mm -hmm. is for us to sure have our tribe, but consciously make an effort to, reach out to and incorporate people who think differently mm -hmm. into our everyday lives. And that might, that might be, you know, purposely trying to mix with people that think differently than we do, or maybe it's just engaging in dialogues with them. Mm -hmm. um, I, I believe very firmly in that. And I, I don't think that modern evangelical Christianity has really embraced that very well. Um, at least not yet. Maybe they will someday. Maybe, but I kind of have a sense that we ought not hold our breath, uh, at least not in this particular moment, because we might die first. Right. But you know what I have to say, though, is is so exciting. Um, 
you know, we have a couple of episodes that cross over into another project that I have called the Single Parent Summit. And one of the things that I find so exciting about the generation that my kids are in and even the ones behind them, um, the millennials perhaps as well, I think, you know, kind of the, the changes that we all experienced, there's a there's a willingness to engage in conversation that I don't feel like even our generation really started off with. I feel like, you know, we kind of had to grow into that. And the more that we did, the more that we're willing to expand and to reach out of our comfort zone in order to find that middle ground. Um, definitely in my experience, anyway, my parents' generation, that was not them, you know, that they were not the ones that had that, but they provided the stability for my generation to start reaching out. And then I think, you know, the, the ones that come beyond that, you know, again, theoretically, the, the hope, the plan is, you know, that we all continue on Maslow's hierarchy of needs and, and each generation that comes after us, they start off higher on the pyramid because of the works of all of the, the generations before them. So there's a part of me that might be ridiculously optimistic, but still, I'm just going to say, you know, I feel like there there is indeed hope that is far more prevalent when we're willing to look for it and when we're willing to engage and again step out of our own comfort zones in order to find that common ground and to build on that as opposed to you know anchoring into the old belief systems i share your optimism i i don't i don't think humanity is doomed i had a a moment of that in 2016 when i thought western society is going to collapse um I've since come to believe, I I, I think a a polarization needs to happen before like the next great stage of progress. Mm -hmm. I think there's historical precedent for that. And at least in America, we're kind of seeing that polarization happen right now. I think we're we're there right now, right? Yeah, we're we're in it. And um, I I, I kind of believe we're going to emerge better. Um, I really do. I so too. So I, you know, I love that you have children that you you know you can your kids are great and are articulate and they're able to kind of give you a a glimpse into what the next generation is going to be like and the fact that it gives you hope is a good thing Mm. um i don't necessarily have that I, i don't have a direct line into the youths as it were but but i still i i look at humanity as a whole and i i think I don't know. I probably share Gene Roddenberry's. Uh, he's the guy that wrote Star Trek, and I, I share his optimism about our future. I think, I think we'll figure it out. Um, I, I believe we will. And so I, you know, I, I, I get lit up about certain things nowadays, and I'm like, there's no fucking hope for this fucking. You know, <laughs> I, I get that way too. But I also, I, you know, at the end of the day, I really do believe that we're we're kind of on the right path and is rejection of religion a part of that maybe i know it is for me um but i you know i don't want to i don't want to vilify religion itself i think the, the 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 people who have kind of been in leadership in in religion have been the problem and that's yeah, that's so probably true that. exactly and yeah. that's true politically that's true mm-hmm. you look at any area of life generally the, as people get closer and closer to the top they they become more and more corrupt but then you, you look at um uh, history and see that society has a way of uh, fixing that 
Mm -hmm. Usually it's storming the palace in Versailles and beheading people, but it, it does happen. You know, society will, will kind of correct, course correct mm -hmm. periodically. Right. Um, and maybe hopefully Christianity has that day coming where there's going to be a bit of a, um, I don't know, a better alignment with, with modern values. Um, I know inside of Christianity, there's a lot of talk about how every uh, few centuries or so, there's, there's like a, a big movement, um, the Great Schism, when the Catholic Church branched off from orthodoxy, uh, when Martin Luther kind of created Protestantism, when uh, Methodism was started and, you know, modern evangelicalism was born. These are all like these moments inside of the Christianity bubble that, that have been important and have kind of pushed the movement forward into its next uh, stage of involvement or I'm sorry, evolution. And um, I, you know, there's a lot of even Christians that, that say that we're due for that mm. now. Um, and I hope so. I, I'm just watching from the stands now. Like I, I, you know, I'm not really actively involved in that world. And I, I think, uh, in fact, I, I've gone like the other, the other way, you know, <laughs> I'm, I'm like really far removed from Christianity and from that world. But, but I, I still, I, you know, I still have an affinity for it, a love for it and a love for the people in it. And so I, I keep in touch and I observe it and I, some of the Christians that I interact with regularly now are some of the coolest people that I know. And so maybe in the same way that you look at your kids and they give you hope, I look at these people and I'm like, wow, that, that gives me a lot of hope that evangelical Christianity isn't just going to continue being a shit show. Yeah. Maybe it'll evolve past that and become a, a really healthy, viable contributor to society uh, instead of something that kind of detracts from it, you know, which, right. which I think is probably how we were raised. We, there was nothing, there wasn't, there's not very much redeemable in terms of how it relates to society. There's not much redeemable about evangelical <laughs> Christianity. And it, what, something that you said that I've heard so many times in these conversations is, you know, I don't hold any judgment for those who, who hold these beliefs or, you know, who choose to either live this lifestyle or, and that could be anything, whether we're talking about the, those still in church, whether we're talking about sexual orientation, whether, whether we're talking about political structure, um, politicals might be a little bit different because I think there are, is still a bit of a judgment there. Yeah, um, yeah. More so because again, it's an integrity issue. You know, where, where is what you say lining up with what you do? Mm -hmm. um, but point being, one of the things that I have loved so much about these conversations is there's such an openness and a willingness to accept people where they are and to recognize that we are, you know, like we said earlier, we are all on this together and we're all continuing to evolve in our own experiences and our belief systems in how we think and view things because we're continuing to get more data every day whether that's by what we're reading what we're listening to who we're talking to what we're engaging in and then we can you know internalize that and make a new decision if we so choose so mm -hmm. it's really nice to be able to have that kind of a an openness rather than this rigidity of this is how I identify. Therefore I have to stay in this little box. I, nice to see. Yeah, that's wonderful. And the, something we haven't really touched on is, is the, uh, the differences in how genders have, are experiencing this. Mm -hmm. And, um, I, as a, 
you know, middle class, I guess I could say middle aged white guy. Um, <laughs> the transition from being a Christian to not being a Christian was r relatively easy. Uh, the hard part was the, the social aspects of it. You know, what will my Christian friends think of me? Um, will they even stay my friends? And in some cases they didn't. Um, that, that was kind of hard, but like there, there was, you know, I'd already been told by evangelical Christianity and I'm, I'm hitting on a sore spot. Uh, I'd already been told by evangelical Christianity that I'm, uh, I'm valid because I have a penis. And um, what I'm loving right now is watching my female uh, friends, you, you know, like you and it, it, many others who are coming out of that world and because you're like, God damn it, I, mm -hmm. I, I'm valid with or without a penis, so sh fuck you. Right. <laughs> and uh, the rejection of purity culture is one of those things. I mean, it, this purity culture is so wicked. Yeah. Um, just, I, I mean, down to telling women that you're responsible for a man's reaction to your body. Mm -hmm. uh, just. And a step further, not holding the man responsible for his own actions at that point. Because, I mean, talk about creating an environment in which rape is very much a part of the culture, but nobody talks about it. Mm -hmm. Well, because the man's never held any you know, sort of responsibility for his behavior. Well, they're just boys. That's just the way they are, yep. you know, is what we're told from a very young age. Um, but before we go off the rails on that one, because that's a conversation I would love, love, love to have with you as the man in that conversation. Um, mm. So I'm hoping that you'll, uh, now that I put you on the spot, that you'll be willing to continue that for another another conversation. Um, this has been so fun just to see all the moving pieces in your own process in this. And I'm hopeful, like I said, that we can get you to come back again and talk more about the purity movement and your perspective from that being on the mm. other side of the aisle, so to speak. I would love to. Um, I, you know, especially since this is recovering church girls and I, uh, I, I went ahead and lit a candle, <laughs> but warm it's, tobacco pipe. it's warm tobacco it. pipe. And, uh, you know, I'm drinking from my, fa <laughs> uh, I, I was it. like, I am masculine. I'm not a, I'm not a female. God damn it. Um, <laughs> but I, I love that conversation because I was complicit to that culture. Mm. Um, I can say now in retrospect that, I was a, a rebel, but hindsight's twenty twenty. I know for a fact that I w was just as gross about it. I know that I was, um, and and so now you know I'm 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 hopefully able to parlay that into an analysis of my life today and how I interact with the women in my life and um, how you know how I make them feel. Um, just as a fellow human. And, and that's probably the part that I'm, you know, we'll, I obviously will discuss this on a future episode, but as a precursor to that, um, I am mostly attacking my presuppositions mm. that, you know, e you could easily go to the other way that now I'm not responsible for protecting your purity. You're, you're, you're who you are, but now all of a sudden I'm responsible for making you feel like a whole person again, in the hierarchy that puts me above you in some way. Mm -hmm. And right. I, I'm trying to attack those things in my own heart and be like, no, we're, we're two human beings mm -hmm. with two completely unique perspectives on life 
And I, as a human being, may or may not have done things or may continue to do things that are hurtful or scary or offensive to you. And I want to know about those, male or female. I don't care who you are. And I want to confront those things. And I, I want to figure out where are those bigotries in my life? How, how am I sexist? And I'm just completely freaking unaware of it. If I'm not confronting those things, if I'm denying it and just saying, I'm not a sexist, I'm not a racist, that doesn't help anybody. Right. And I, I want to confront that. I want to end it. I, don't, I, I think my little tiny, silly, minuscule piece of our evolution is hopefully one of many, many, many people especially men, <laughs> uh, confronting those biases that we have and yeah. identifying them and rooting them out so that I'm not mm-hmm. passing them on to the next generation. Absolutely. Just getting that grossness out. And um, yeah, so I, I think that's been a big part of my recovery from, uh, from church <laughs> has been finding what, what gross things did it put inside of me. Um, one of those gross things I'm sure was viewing myself as some kind of superior species just because I'm a guy, mm. you know, like how, how dare you be a woman around me? It's just, <laughs> unless, I, I mean, unless I'm going to make you a sandwich, right? That's, that's yeah. I mean, you know, I do like, <laughs> I like sandwiches a lot. So. <laughs> okay. Well, I know us. And if we don't wrap this right now, we will keep going and we'll just roll into the next episode. Um, That's true. So, so having said that, um, Dan, thank you. Uh, not only just for your time tonight, but thank you truly for your friendship for the last 25 years. And um, wow, that emotion hit me harder than I thought. Oh, I'm so grateful for you and I'm grateful for the journeys that we've shared and even the years that we lost touch um, and just picked right back up wherever we left off. I'm, I'm very grateful for that. That is that's such a gift, uh, especially in such a transient society and, and all the rest of it. So thank you for that, my friend. Well, I love you and I am always happy to talk to you, whether it is uh, on a podcast or when I am drunk and just need somebody to keep me <laughs> Um, it's another story for another time, but, um, you're, you're just, it's lovely that you're doing this and, uh, I'm just, you know, glad to play a tiny little role. Thank you. So for you guys who are listening and watching as I'm like wiping my eye makeup off my face here, uh, if this resonates with you, you know, you guys know what I'm going to ask you to do. Sure. You can like, and subscribe and rate and yada, 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 but really it's about sharing the conversation. So get involved yourself and share the conversation if uh, this resonated with you and you feel like there are others in your world that, that need to hear this and so that you guys can continue with, to have the, the same conversation yourselves as well. Uh, so, Dan, thank you, and uh, we'll be right back here again very soon. Thanks, guys. 